0: Uh, our preteens and our junior high students need to be released. It's time for you guys to go ahead and head on out to your classes. And it's uh, kind of starting off the bat here. A couple of announcements, just wanted to make sure that were made as well. Uh, if you've got your calendars out, March 20th uh, is a L.A. Congregational Shrine Service. Again, that's March 20th. And our chili cook-off, which was scheduled next week and has been moved out to March 6th. Are you cooking? More time to prep? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> okay. Amen. Well, uh, on that note, before I start preaching, let's go ahead and go to the Father in prayer. Amen? Father, uh, I just want to thank you for the opportunity you've given us today to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, as Jim shared about, I, I appreciate communion and that it gives me the opportunity to really think about uh, so much of what I have in Christ. And Father, I pray that as we sit here today that... Uh, we realize that this is not necessarily a time of what we can come away with as much as it is a time to really worship you and express to you how grateful we are for the impact that you've had in our lives, Jesus Christ that you sent to save us, and just so many different ways that you take care of us in this life that uh, in so many ways can get out of control. Father, thank you for your Son. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. And you know, one thing, too, uh, if you... I wanted to tag this in the prayer and missed it. Uh, If we could keep Paul Hammond in our prayers. He just had his surgery on Friday. Uh, I hear he's doing well. Let's just continue to pray for him and make sure that he has an incredible recovery that comes out of this. And uh, my daughter, Shailene, was diagnosed with uh, both the flu and pneumonia earlier in the week. She's uh, responding well to the bag full of meds that she has. But uh, if you could pray for a complete recovery on her part, I'd really appreciate it. You know, we're uh, looking at uh, Jesus from a little bit different perspective. As we saw with the lesson that Brian teached last week, um, you know, there were never pictures he had on the screen. We've got this, this Jesus that, that looks like he's emaciated and, you know, the, the, the Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders. And the reality of it is, if we look to scriptures, Jesus is a man's man. I mean, he is a man that deals with things. He doesn't have a problem being confrontational. He's a man of conviction, as we've seen with some of the titles that we've got coming up in the upcoming mu- uh, this month. Uh, he's a liberator. He's a leader. He's a fighter. The thing that we're talking about today is Jesus is a risk taker. I wanted to show us uh, some risk takers that we may be familiar with here before we. You know it's amazing when it comes to men and women. Some of the things that we'll do to get a little adrenaline cranking in the system. Hopefully, you guys are feeling that way a little bit right now. Uh, I, those uh, those first guys, the birdmen from Norway, those flight suits are absolutely crazy. I'm ready, Marco. Let's go. The the motor, the motorcycle stuff, jumping canyons and creeks and that kind of thing. I I think I'll pass on that, but. Uh, some of that plain stuff definitely looks pretty cool. But when it comes to risk-taking, there's a couple of definitions that are out there. One of them states that risk-taking means taking actions which might have unpleasant or undesirable results. Now, in putting these videos together, uh, needless to say, these are the ones that had a little bit more of the desirable outcome. Uh, I was amazed by the number of videos where you guys will probably be grateful that they weren't up on the screen where things didn't work out quite so well. Another definition is it's a person who's not fearful of uncertainty and may even enjoy risky speculative situations. He or she is a person who will take a chance or gamble in hopes of winning. You know even in society today it's just amazing the different things that we have because of risk. insurance. You know what is that somebody sits down at a table somewhere we may even have some of you in the in the room here that you know will take a look and assess a risk and put a dollar amount on what it is that is going on in that particular situation but insurance is a risk reducing investment in which buyer obviously puts a small amount of money down and hope that nothing will happen but it protects against a much potential larger loss. gambling is a risk increasing investment you know, most of us are uh, familiar with Madoff and what took place there, you know, putting a lot of money into something, hoping for a much greater return with, and obviously those that invested with Madoff, the, the possibility of losing it all. Uh, there's so many different aspects of that. When it comes to jobs, we have people that deal with risk management, risk assessment. And what we're going to look at today, one of the things that I feel is that we have two types of recklessness. There's rest, reckless risk. And then assess risk, where, you know, you can kind of do a little count, counting the costs and make the determination as to, well, you know, the, the upside of this probably is a little bit greater than the downside. You know, when it comes to risk, most young people and adults today think that really the purpose of life is to have a good time. And it's amazing, as we saw, for the sake of a good time, what people are willing to risk. Ultimately, it's in a lot of ways, it's looking for a momentary fix. I'm going to talk about a little bit more of that as we move forward here, just some of the things that I did as a kid, which probably weren't the uh, brightest things in the world to do. But when it comes to that fix, you know, we look at what goes on with the youth today. Our teenagers are so easily drawn into dangerous sports, reckless driving, drugs, promiscuous sex and violence, and in a lot of ways that can carry on over into our adult lives as well. You know, as a kid... I had a pretty uh, challenging upbringing. Uh, and it was probably a good thing. I might not be alive today. But I had a mom that really leaned on me. There wasn't a whole lot of freedom. I didn't get out of the house very often. And I, I was a band nerd. And with that, I had the opportunity during those evening band practices to uh kind of fudge a little bit with the time that I was going to be getting home. And uh trucks and myself didn't agree too well with each other. I had a number of instances where I don't know why, a buddy and I decided that there was this construction going on through this curvy road and they have those, those little guardrail type light things, uh, you know, the, the easels with the lights on top and the whole road through the curves was covered with those. So I, I got a bag, put a boulder in it, it tied it to a rope, had the rope intertwined in between my fingers and as we drove by I threw it into the first one and I was fired up man, that thing's bouncing behind us, sparking in the whole bit and I took out about 20 of them as it went along but I didn't realize that those reflector plates that are in the ground are not aluminum. They're steel. And that wonderful thing wrapped around, and I just about lost these two fingers as the rope shot out from in between my fingers. Another instance where uh, I was engaged once before, uh, prior to uh, meeting Jackie, and uh, things were not going super well. You know, I made this road trip up to San Francisco to visit my then fiance, who was in, in Stanford Medical Center. Uh, she almost died from anorexia. Uh, they had to pull out the defibrillators with her at one point. I guess her electrolyte balance was totally shot. And I, I think I was feeling, looking back, I didn't realize, I was probably pretty depressed about the overall situation. And I remember uh, driving up to the Bay Area in a Mazda RX-7, making the trip in about 3 hours and 45 minutes. Um, and that included getting busted by the highway patrolman that I thought I had pegged as I came down the five in the grapevine. I saw him waiting for me ahead. So I slowed down, cruised on by, and needless to say, I guess, you know those signs that say, beware of the aircraft, blah, blah, blah. They're real. They, they clocked me. And uh, I very smugly cruised by him at 55, that's when the speed limit up there was 55, and he proceeded to pull out behind me. But I look back, I was driving through the 5 in this incredibly thick fog where I could only see a car's length in front of me. And I remember racing a Porsche down through there. Obviously for me to get there in 3 hours and 45 minutes, I was in excess of 120 miles an hour, a good part of that trip. Uh, you know, I had a 67 El Camino, for those of you that uh, are the car junkies. It had a 396 Turbojet, Turbo 400 Tranny. I raced all the time. Reckless. High risk. It really is amazing that I'm here today, just looking back at a lot of those situations. As an adult, you know, I, I think I do a little bit better job today, you know, in the risk assessment area. Uh, you, you know, you kind of count the cost before you do things. But... Uh, Going back uh, a number of years ago, uh, I worked for Hummer, uh, I owned a couple of different hum- Hummers through that period of time, and I did a lot of off-road events that I sponsored, coordinated and helped people off-road. Uh, this is lines back in Moab. And um, needless to say, they had about four or five fatalities out there a year. I can remember never instances being in a Hummer on a horse trail where I could open the door and literally if I stepped out, we're dealing with a thousand foot drop. But I, I loved it. It was awesome. It was such a rush. And I remember when I first was getting trained, I had my son with me at an event, and the guy that was uh, kind of training me wasn't... Uh, real good with the hand signals and directions and all and I was coming down a slope and he motioned for me to do this well I figured I'm in a Hummer I can go ahead and do it right where I was and kind of went down the slope it was about an 80 uh, percent vertical angle I ended up doing a handstand on the front two wheels fortunately I goosed a little bit and the rear end came on back down I remember my son kind of looking over me a little concerned and that there was dirt about two feet away from the window as we kind of went from the two to one and then back onto the four but you know, it's it's amazing the things that we do. I love adrenaline, I love the rush. But ultimately, where does that get you in the grand scheme of things? And when it comes to risk takers, history's given us a lot to look back at. Some of them were individuals that made incredible inroads for us as mankind. Others, it was just a matter of setting records. Uh, we saw Evel Knievel's brother, with or excuse me, son Robbie, with a 322 foot jump on that motorcycle. You know, we have guys like Sir Edmund Hillary who climbed Mount Everest, first Westerner to ever get to the peak. Uh, Columbus. You know, these, these early adventurers that crossed the ocean in those galleons that they had. I get out of my kayak and I get to the point where I almost can't see shore and I start to stress a little bit. I can't imagine putting out to sea for weeks on end with no land, yet that willingness to, to take those chances. You know, we have Lewis and Clark across the United States. Emilia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, when it comes to airplanes and some of the things that were set there. Uh, Learned something new. I thought Alan Shepard was the first man in space. It was actually Yuri Gagarin in Russia, April 12th of 1961. And Alan Shepard followed up a little bit later, May 5th of 61. We have Martin Luther King, incredible civil rights activist that died for his cause and his convictions. And then the world record holders, Evel Knievel, Steve Irwin, risk-taking. There's a couple of quotes that I wanted to read here. It says, in the long run, we get no more than we've been willing to risk giving. And then T.S. Eliot states that only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. You know, I think the thing that ultimately we need to realize is without risk, there's no reward. You know, if you ask someone on a date, if you risk-involved, I know for me, it it was a long time coming because I didn't want to hear those wonderful two letters. N-O. No. It's one of the things you risk, right? But if you don't put it out there, there is that possibility that you might get a response that you want, right? Getting married involves risk. That's why when I proposed to Jacqueline, I kind of snuck in the back door on it. Rather than asking her if she wanted to marry me, I I knew that she had already been engaged before, too, and I asked her if she had an aversion to wedding rings. She told me no, so we were engaged that night. I dated her for a month, we were engaged for a month, and then we eloped. That's a whole other story. We don't have time for that one today. Um, you know, when it comes to sports, again, without taking a risk, I mean, you got to push the envelope, you got to push the envelope, and ultimately what can happen? You blow out a knee, your career's gone. But without really going after it, it keeps you from being that all-star, that individual that can set those kinds of records. Flying, it's amazing. We get into airplanes all the time. We don't even think about it. And I'm still amazed that those big old beasts can get off the ground. You know, for, for some of you, my wife, if you've driven with me, well, my wife would say getting in the car with me is being a risk taker. I feel the same way when she's driving, but anyway. <laughs> but, you know, and again, it's amazing how many times we'll take risk and do things that, you know, whether it be going after a bigger paycheck, a better degree, a bigger TV, a bigger home, or things that can generate what we view as being more prestigious, and we don't even really think about the risk in those situations. And when we look at the world as a whole, most people take risks to please themselves, but very few are interested in taking risks to please God. You know, we can allow the fear of risk to keep us from gaining the rewards that the Bible talks about, that God promises when it comes to Christian service. I appreciate the brothers and sisters that were up here singing today. You know, and and the musicians. There's risk involved. You know, especially starting out and training and going after it. There's always that fear of maybe missing a note. And sometimes it happens. But thank God they're willing to take those risks and we get the incredible music that we have worshiping God on Sunday afternoons. Amen? Amen. I appreciate those that lead, those that speak, preachers that preach the truth, not fluff, but the truth in accordance with what the scriptures say. Anyone who works hard for Christ will stand before him on that day of judgment in light of what we know it says in Matthew 25, verse 21, and we'll hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. You know I think a lot of times we can get caught up in what we've got. We feel a lot more comfortable in suburbia today, in our climate-controlled homes, with all the gadgets and electronics and robotics and everything else that this world's going to that maybe can save us a little time or keep us from doing a little work, so we can watch our big-screen TVs. If we're not careful, we can live purposeless, empty lives. So I appreciate about Jesus Christ. You know, risk-taking as a Christian, as a disciple, is serving God despite the danger of suffering loss. What we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Matthew 5, verse 17, at one of the greatest risk-takers of all time, and that's Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, verse 17. You'll turn there with me. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. You know, I think sometimes we, even, we need to be careful when it even comes to what we see in the New Testament. It's amazing how we can kind of pick and choose and look at different things and say, Well, you know, that's not really in the New Covenant. You know, things like giving, being sacrificial, tithing. But what does Jesus say here? Jesus comes and he takes it to the next level. In verse 18 he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, here we see Jesus as a risk taker. All these guys, the religious leaders, the teachers, they know what's going on. They hear what's going on. They see what's going on. He's been going after it. He's been mixing it up. You know, and I appreciate that degree of conviction. I appreciate individuals like Joe and Nicole Lee, and the sacrifice that goes on in their lives, and the willingness that they go after, just really trying to make a difference within their community, within people that they meet. And it's it's just so in, inspiring to me to be able to sit down in those situations and just see what an incredible impact they're having. Like Dan and Lisa Raleigh. Again, just really making a difference. And there's so many. I could go on and on in here. But I think we all need to be in that mix. Amen? Amen. Verse 21. It's interesting. Jesus, throughout this passage, says, You have heard, but this is what I say. Really trying to make, a, make an impact or make a point. So verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Verse 27, again, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31 You have heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And Jesus goes on and on and on throughout this passage. Ultimately in verse 43, I think really dialing things in here for us, he says, You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. and that way, you will be acting as the true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? Even pagans do that see Jesus was a man of conviction, a risk taker willing to make a difference there's a passage out of John 2 I want us to just kinda watch for a moment here and then we'll pick things up in Psalm 69 not not the kind of Jesus that we normally think through and think about I, I would imagine that his disciples were sitting there with their hearts cranking as much as those guys jumping off the cliffs in the beginning of the video seeing what was taking place, knowing the power that the religious authorities of the day had. Uh, within, the, within the temple courts, those spots of the money changers and the individuals selling animals, they were actually leased. They paid to be there in the courts, the temple courts, so that they would have that opportunity to, to make money on those that would pilgrimage into town and maybe didn't have the animals or the proper coinage for uh, making the purchases for their sacrifices. You know, in Psalm 69, verse 9, it reads, Passion for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Just to see that degree of conviction that he had, and this wasn't just some random outburst on his part. If we we go back and we take a look at the parallel passages in Mark 11, he had actually scoped out the temple the night before and was amazed by what was taking place. So he put together, he braided that cord, And went in, knowing exactly what he was doing. This just wasn't some outburst, but he realized the temple was a place of worship. Not to be desecrated by the degree of corruption that the religious leaders of the day were going after. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. You have this incredible temple, and you got the stench of the sheep, the goats, the, the cattle, whatever it was that was being herded in there. And the noise and everything else where people were supposed to be worshiping. Got a little uh, diagram of the temple here. What we have is just there's four actually different areas uh, that it's broken into. You have the Holy of Holies, which is surrounded by the Court of the Priest. Once a year, they actually go in and make atonement for the entire uh, country of Israel or the Israelites. You have the Court of Israel, this little narrow band right here, which is where the man would go in and worship and pray. Outside of that, you have the court of the women, and then this entire area outside, this is on an area of about 30 acres in size, this was the court of the Gentiles. So you can kind of see the degree of separation. You have the priests, you have the men, you have the women, and then this area out here is where the actual money changers and those selling animals were, and this was supposed to be the place of worship for the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. I can't imagine being able to go into that kind of a setting and really being able to focus a whole lot on God. I don't know about you, but I think even thinking through, again, what we do when it comes to our Sunday services, really understanding that, as it was with the temple, the temple was not a house of sacrifice or offerings or teaching or prophecy or preaching, but it's a house of worship. And really making sure that we have that kind of a mindset when we come in here on a Sunday. That we're, we're here to worship God and to give to one another. And with that worship, that we're here in a timely manner. And we really understand the importance of what it is that we're doing on Sunday. You know, the temple building, as I said, was kind of broken out into a couple different things. You had the Holy of Holies, which was the naos. And then the temple precincts were all the outer areas. And with that... I think you can see the degree of division that ended up taking place through the years. And Jesus, as we know, came to destroy all boundaries. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me, we'll take a look at that. It was interesting with the Gentiles, if they were to stray into any of those areas, it was posted on a high wall around that whole courtyard that it would be punishable by death. That's how the Gentiles were viewed at that point in time. We know Jesus had a much different mindset when it came to each and every one that walks on the face of this planet. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, it reads, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And you can see that with what took place in those temple courts, the religious leaders of the day had to have been ticked off and felt threatened. You know, it's amazing. When you look back at the Levitical priesthood when it was first established, it was a matter of protection for the Israelites. It was a matter of mediating between them and God. It was a matter of serving. But we know as we go through the Bible, we see this transition where its not it wasn't about serving the people. It was about them themselves being served. You know, we look at Eli and his sons. Hophni, and I'm forgetting the other one off the top of my head. Phineas, I believe. Hophni and Phineas. And what we see that where where their mindset went, it was about what they could get, what they could come away with. Didn't have anything to do with their role as a priest or mediator for the people. Jesus came to totally destroy that and set things right. If you'll turn with me to John two, verse eighteen. John 2 verse 18, and we saw this in the video, says the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us miraculous signs to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What they exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build the temple, how can you rebuild it in three days? You know, Jesus took an incredible risk when he made that statement. That statement was used to later charge Jesus with being an insurrectionist. And in Matthew 26 and in Matthew 27, it was the very thing that was used to taunt him when he was on the cross dying for our sins. And I said this earlier, risk-taking as a Christian, a disciple, is serving God despite the danger of suffering loss. And most of us will take those risks to please ourselves, but few of us are interested in taking risks to please God. What stops us from taking risks for God? Fear fear of the unknown Fear of rejection Fear of maybe not doing things quite right Fear of doing something that we don't normally do you know, fear in and of itself isn't bad Unless it keeps us from doing the right things And if we allow that to happen The outcome can be incredibly bad Revelations 21 And one of the things that we see Is that the people that will be excluded from the new Jerusalem Are those that are fearful or cowardly But if we're obedient to Christ, as we see here in verse 7, there's an incredible outcome. It says, all who are victorious will inherit all their blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers, and all liars, their fate is the fiery lake of burning sulfur that is the second death. You know, we've got to be careful. If we don't understand who God is, we don't have the kind of faith that God calls us to, we can fall into that realm of being cowardly. I've been there. I've had those instances where I've allowed my relationship to go by the wayside. I haven't been open with the brothers that were my life. And Satan could have completely taken me out. What does that fear look like? Well, it can look like apathy. Being disconnected from the body. No concern for others in or outside of the church. You know, being a modern-day consumer rather than a first-century giver. You know, for disciples, for Christians, fear can be dangerous. Any fear that keeps us from doing the will of God can totally put us out of the fellowship with Him, and we can forfeit the blessing that He's given us through Christ for eternity. Now, what gives us the ability to overcome fear? Faith. You know, how important is faith? Faith. Well, Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. Anyone who wants to come to Him must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who sincerely seek Him. You know, when we do what God has called us to do, many of us have experienced these kind of victories through life when we've surrendered to God, when we've given Jesus the ability to truly work in our lives by making Him Lord and Master. And you know, Jesus understood this more than anyone. Jesus understood that God had given him all power, John 13, verse 3, Matthew 28, verse 18. And with that, he led in such a way that he relied on the power of God. You know, we look at his life, prayer and fasting, followed by action, led to incredible miracles. Miracles that enabled his guys, when he was gone, to take a stand and get the word out to the the entire known world at that point in time. And that each miracle that he performed was because of his faith in God. It enabled him to overcome those risks. Jesus taught that anyone can risk serving others when they trust that God is in control of their lives. I mean, didn't Jesus say that we would go on to do even greater things? What was the greatest thing that Jesus faced? Well, I personally believe we'll see that when we turn to John 13. Turn with me, if you will, John 13, verse 3. John 13, verse 3. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. Now, he doesn't seem super risky on the uh, front side here, right? You know, how, I mean, we, some of the things that we've seen today, you know, him clearing the temple, people jumping off cliffs, things of that nature. But I think as we go through the rest of this passage, we need to keep in mind who Jesus Christ is. The Son of God, down from heaven. Verse 12. It says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again, and he sat down, and he asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them you know we think about the uh, hot Palestinian countryside I had the opportunity to go to Israel a number of years ago and from a cultural standpoint during this time there were bowls of water that were set up at the front of the houses everybody's homes coming on in now if you were poor you would walk into the house you wash your own feet but for those who were wealthy they had servants that would wait there and wash your feet as you came in Think about this, what Jesus has just done here. Jesus was assuming the place of a servant or slave. In the Greek, doulos. Do slaves have any rights? Yet that was what Jesus, that's the role that he was willing to step into here. Jesus was willing to risk it all, to give it all up, so that we could have a relationship with him. Now, how was Jesus able to assume that role of a slave? Well, there's three realities that he trusted in. Number one, he knew who he was. He was the son of God. He also knew with that, he knew whose he was. He belonged to God. God was his father. And ultimately, the thing that enabled him to to give it all up, to risk it all, was he believed, he totally knew where he was going to go. And it was back to be reunited with the Father in heaven. You know, these three things are the things that led to his source of confidence. And they can also lead us the same way. We can risk serving God and others with the talents that we have blessed with if we simply believe that God is in control. You know, several times in my life, God has asked me, are you really ready to give it up? You know, I remember when I first became a Christian in 1990, I was managing Santa Monica Ford. And uh, studied the Bible, started studying on a, a, a Sunday, was baptized the following Monday. Was agnostic in belief, but after having built a relationship with Bruce Teague, and then really deciding to sit down and take a look at the Scriptures, it totally changed my life. But you know, there were a few things that they didn't get into all the details with me when, it, you know, Cost County isn't quite the same thing as it is today. I wasn't going to church on Sunday, because of some of the challenges I had in the workplace. They had maybe gone to a couple of the midweeks at the time. And uh, I remember all of a sudden being challenged. Well, bro, you need to be at church on Sunday. It's like, okay, I can hear that. But, you know, my boss, the owner, the son, uh, he has a membership of the Riviera Country Club. He golfs on Sunday. Golf is kind of his church on Sunday. I really don't see him giving that up so that I can go to church. It's like, bro, you need to have faith. You know, one of those moments. It's like, okay, here we go. I remember sitting down in his office thinking I was going to get clipped. You know, and I kind of explained, I go, you know, Mark, when I started with you, I wasn't a Christian. You know, this is my conviction now, and it's really important for me to be a church, and really in a lot of ways I'll become a better employee for you because of just some of the changes in my life. And I'm like, bruh, 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 bruh. you know, and I'd already talked through the clothes, I'm sure. But he looked at me and he said, he goes, you know, Steve, I, I can appreciate that. And he thought about it for a moment, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if he can appreciate it, that means I'm probably not getting fired. So, you know what, can you be in at 1 o'clock? Well, at the time, we were meeting at the Will Turn and the Shrine, and, you know, I had to kind of jet at noon to get there by 1, but I'm like, yeah. So he was willing to give up that morning. God totally worked that on out so that I would be able to honor him, but it was because I was willing to surrender it. I remember in 1991, After I convinced Mark to give me Sundays off, going back to Mark and saying, Hey, you know, uh, Mark, um, there's this full-time ministry intern thing that uh, they sort of kind of want me to do. And uh, never done it before. It was scary. It It was incredibly scary giving up the career that I had at that point in time to step into something I had absolutely no idea about, selling our home, losing thousands of dollars in that sale, you know, going down to one car. I don't even want to think about that too long. I will never remember, you know, See you later, babe! I'm heading out! No, you're not, I need the car! Uh, we, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if God wanted that set up that way, so it would kind of expose the fact that our communication was kind of lousy, and we had some other issues in the marriage that needed to be worked out, but, you know, that was another one of those moments. 2003, resigning from the full-time ministry, but deciding to stay and preach... Because of the things that were going on up there at that point in time, in shoreline were wrong. And I wasn't going to be run out of town. I was going to take a stand on the Bible. But transitioning back into the secular world, after having been out of the secular world, I mean, you know, the resume looks a little funky. You know, I had this like 12-year gap for model sales. But you know, God again was good. A guy that used to work for me, Philippe Naveau, called me. There was a management position. I, I thought he wanted me to go back and sell on the floor. I, I, I couldn't even imagine that. It was the most lucrative job that I had ever been blessed with. I mean, Jackie and I were making three times what we made in the ministry, coming out of the ministry, you know, selling Hummers. I mean, come on. Tough, right? But, you know, then in, in 2008, things did get a little tougher. 2010, moved to Denver you know, was in a position where, you know, it might be kind of nice just to sit in the middle of the church somewhere and not have a whole lot of responsibility and have somebody take care of me for a change and, and be in a situation where financially things were going to be really, really easy. And then you get that phone call. You know, and I, and Somebody really helped me out with this. I, I couldn't understand the timing. I couldn't understand what was going on. But one of the brothers that I had been getting advice from, I don't even remember who it was at the time, but he said to me, he was, bro, I think God just wants to see if you're willing to surrender it up again. Risk as Christians. And, you know, I'm blessed to be one in one of the most incredible places on the face of the planet with such an awesome congregation to be a part of. But because of the willingness to understand that God is in control and the willingness to take those risks. believing God's in control. You know, when we do that, when we believe God is in control, we can take big risks. And what I want to throw out there to you, one of the things I was kind of excited about this and walking back through it, you know, I did a lesson on fasting. I was really convicted. I haven't done a very good job with that through the years. But looking at this, it's nice to kind of see my life still being dotted with those incredible risks. What I want to throw out there to you today, when's the last time you took a big risk? Really took a big risk. Threw something out there at God to see what he would do with it and then move forward with it. So, you know, we can give up impressive positions, titles, and incomes if called to do so. We can be sacrificial in our giving of time and money and know that if we truly put God in control, surrender to Him, that He'll meet our needs, that we can have a godly impact in our homes and our communities and not stress out about what tomorrow will bring. We won't waste precious time trying to protect what we have. See, a Christian who desires to see God use Him in a mighty way must rely on God's strength, not the strength of themselves. Jesus relied on God. You know, He was demonstrating the route to royalty by serving. So, the way to royalty is service. The way to greatness is ministry, meeting the needs of others. The way to power is through humility. The way to greatness, again, ministry. The way to position is serving. The way to rule is giving. You know, as you sit here today, it's kind of interesting. We look at the history of this country, there's always been two types of people in life there's settlers and there's pioneers. A settler is a person who settles in a new colony or moves into a new country. You know, it's interesting. we weren't a whole lot of definitions on uh, settlers. There were a lot of definitions on pioneers. Open up an area, prepare a way. Take the leader initiative in. Participate in the development of. Open up and explore a new area. Pioneer space. One, the first colonist or settler in a new territory. You know, and some of the synonyms for pioneer are pretty cool, too. Innovator. Trailblazer. Groundbreaker. Open up, initiate. You know, a settler cries out, Is it safe out there? And the pioneer yells back, It's awesome! Come on out! As you sit here today, which are you? You just kind of settled on in? Good with the status quo? Pew potato? That's P.E.W. Not, not 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 the smell kind. A pew potato. Are you content with being a settler? Or are you a risk taker? A pioneer? See, God needs pioneers, men and women that are willing to go out and make a difference, take a risk to be someone different, to go out against the grain, and to turn things upside down for this world. You know, some of you in this room have been contemplating Christianity, and you have the scriptural knowledge, but you've yet to take that risk and step out to be someone different and get baptized. See, here's the thing, without, nothing is riskier than doing it without Christ. You know, some of you have been around a while. You don't like the fact that you have become complacent, that you're a settler. Simple solution. Quit waiting for someone to give you a title. See a need, meet a need. Take a risk. Be a pioneer. Make a difference. Let's make 2011 the year that you become a risk taker. Amen.